Today's show is brought to you by Rich Nutrients, New Zealand's premier provider of nutrient-dense whole food products. One of my current favourites is their organic beef and turmeric bone broth powder. And the reason for that is it's so convenient, you don't have to go through the whole process of actually making bone broth. And it's super tasty. If you visit their page, richnutrients.co.nz, click onto the shopping page and you'll find a Best Me tab. Under this tab you'll find all of the products that I use and recommend. Now as a Best Me listener, you have the opportunity to receive 10% off all orders over $30, which is a pretty decent discount. All you have to do is enter the Best Me discount code at the checkout, which in one word is Best Me, all in capitals. I hope you enjoy their products as much as I do. You can also find me at HealthFit Collective, which is exactly how it sounds, a collective of health and fitness practitioners, including physiotherapy, psychology, nutrition, we have movement coaches, personal trainers, massage, and much more. Our goal is to guide your dreams to reality, and we do this both within the club and online, offering tailored health plans, small group training, specialist services, corporate wellness, and education. So please go along and visit the page healthfitcollective.co.nz to find out more. You can also book a free 30-minute consultation with no strings attached. Welcome to Best Me Radio. I'm your host, Carl Hammington, and I talk to experts in many areas, including movement, psychology, nutrition, as well as other inspiring people who have done extraordinary things, all in an attempt to provide you with the information inspiration and tools that will empower you to step into the best version of yourself. Welcome back Best Me community and thanks again for your support and feedback. I had a lot of great feedback from the last interview with Frank about the long body and it sounded like most people agreed with me and thought his message at the end was exactly what uh, the planet needs to hear right now. Um, Now exciting news we might be looking at bringing Frank over to New Zealand at the end of the year to to share his uh, extensive knowledge and experiences which is pretty exciting. So so stay posted um, through HealthFit and through Best Me. Now what's happening with Best Me and myself? So I had a few questions about the foraging book and my resources. Um, The book I have at the moment is called, I've got a couple, uh, A Forager's Treasury by Joanna Knox. I think it's really useful. Um, a little story to go alongside this. So it's my mum's birthday this weekend, which is pretty excited. She's 60. Happy birthday, mum. <laughs> but I'm on cake uh, organization duty. So of course I wanted a, uh, a natural cake as I don't want to poison my mum. <laughs> um, and my friend Gina makes the most incredible artistic cakes. Um, Gina, quick shout out to you. Make sure you get a website up so I could send people your way. And we wanted to decorate the, the cake and these edible flowers. Uh, Gina went out to try and source these herself. Uh, at shops and and it turns out it's not uh, there's not many in stock at the moment so I thought oh this is a great opportunity for me to apply you know what I've been learning so I went out for 45 minutes just around the corner from uh, where I work and managed to you know get a whole gather a whole bag full of edible flowers and they they look and taste spectacular so um, I actually posted these on my Instagram and Facebook page so um, if you want to know a bit more about uh, best me what I do in terms of my food, my movement, uh, foraging, uh, you know, things like that, please go along and follow uh, my Instagram feed. It's probably the best. So I do a lot of live updates. Um, but also the, the Facebook page, usually I put a bit more content-heavy stuff on there. So, yeah, go along and give that a follow. It's Best Me Community for both of them. Now, um, today's interview, uh, Nora Gagaldas. Wow, this lady is, she's incredible. <laughs> I love how well-researched she is. Um, I love her sense of humor. It's it's really, really uh, quite special. Um, and I really enjoy the way that she talks and presents. Um, 
she's got such a unique voice and I think that will come through uh, today as well. Um, she also, she's, she's got, she just keeps it real, uh, which I love. So, um, and there's some real, uh, good practical gold nuggets and, and, uh, and I just want to thank, uh, Nora as well for being so vulnerable and sharing her story. You know, she really dives into her, her internal battles, um, you know, with her mental health and, you know, it takes a lot to share that, but she talks about how she pulled herself out and a lot of that she puts down to, um, a high fat diet and, and proper nutrition, so thank you, Nora, for sharing that, and uh, please enjoy. Uh, this is really quite an insightful interview, um, and send us plenty of feedback. Hope you're all well and stepping into the best version of yourself. Welcome back, Best Me community, and today we have a very special guest who I'm very uh, excited to uh, introduce to you, and that is Nora Gagaldas. Nora is a widely, widely recognized expert on what is popularly referred to as the paleo diet. She is the author of the international best-selling book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, which is beyond the paleo diet for total health and a longer life. Such a good book. Everyone should read. Um, she's also the author of the best-selling book, Rethinking Fatigue. This is an e-book. What your adrenals are really telling you and what you can do about it. I haven't read that one yet, but I'd be really excited to talk to you about it, Nora. Um, sure. And more recently, Primal Fat Burner, um, which we're going to dive into a little bit today. Nora is also, uh, she also runs a private practice in Portland, Oregon where she operates as a, nutrition, a certified nutritional consultant and a clinical neurofeedback specialist. She's also an internationally recognized speaker and educator and regularly appears on radio, podcasts, and fantastic podcasts, actually, like uh, Rewild Yourself. I really enjoyed your interview, interviews with Daniel. Um, oh, yeah. Online summits, uh, television, and film. Welcome to the show, Nora. Oh, thanks, Carl. It's, it's such a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Is there anything else you want to add to that uh, extensive list there? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on, but <laughs> it would take valuable time away from Agreed. actually providing information. Yeah. So I just want to share with the audience um, where I came across your work and why I found it uh, so valuable. So actually, I've come across uh, you a couple in a couple of different places. I'm not sure if you realize, but... We both uh, spoke at the the Mind Foundation in Sydney. Um, oh, sure. That's, that, that was a great uh, great event. And I'd love to get it. It is again. a event, yes. Um, and then the Paleo Way Tour in Wellington, um, yes. where actually I think my daughter uh, Brooke introduced herself to you first, where she came crashing through the uh, the green room door, charged straight up to you, introduced herself, <laughs> grabbed some food, and then came back. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, Wellington is just such a such a gorgeous city. It, it yeah. really is. Yeah, minus the earthquakes, it's, it's pretty special. Well, right, minus the earthquakes. <laughs> well, I live in the Pacific Northwest, or, you know, where, well, we actually don't get many earthquakes here, but the ones that we're slated for are, are, are doozies, so. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Is that potential here, too? Yeah, perhaps you can relate, yeah. So, and, um, yeah. I guess what I, what I really enjoyed about, uh, about your presentations to start with, or the way that you spoke, was it was so obvious how, how well-researched you were. Um, and you often reference, even off the top of your head, I don't know how you do this, but um, research papers, how they're conducted, um, and then comparing them as well. Um, yeah. But the way you presented it was in such a fun way, and you've got this fantastic um, dry sense of humor and sort of a little bit of realism as well. Like you just bring it back to um, the basics, um, which I really enjoyed. And then since hearing you present as well, I've, I've obviously read some of your work, and like I said, Primal Body um, – Primal mind, primal body. So primal, primal body, primal mind. I should say, yeah. uh, was a real game changer for me. So um, 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, sharing this information and yeah, making yeah. it so digestible for people. Thank you. Um, I mean, it, it, it it's, means a lot, actually, to me to hear you know you talk about it that way, and it's exactly what it is I intended to do with that book. You know, so many books today are basically written with marketing in mind, you know, and um, they're best basically... You know, from from start to finish, one big long infomercial. Well, you know, Primal Body, Primal Mind was anything but. Actually, all of my books are anything but. But yeah. that particular book was like 15 books in one. If I was trying to yeah. you know, create a marketing book, it, I couldn't have done it in a dumber way. Um, because <laughs> just basically, I, I wanted to put everything that I had learned up to that point in one place that I could feel good about, that I could feel proud of, and and that would help people you know, who read it to connect a lot of the same dots that I, you know, and so, um, and, and, you know, really that's where I come from is just a very deeply passionate place when it comes to wanting to help people feel self-empowered, um, you know, to be able to understand how that machine that they inhabit works, you know, in a way that, that they can kind of, where they know what to do, right? Where they have a basic enough understanding that that they don't, um, um, you know, need to feel, you know, confused or, you know, kind of crazed by all of the conflicting information out there. It's just, it's it provides a very common sense foundation. So that's, and I'm very foundational and very functional in my thinking about things. So that's what I try to put across. You know, it's the idea of restoring health as opposed to just sort of throwing things at symptoms right yep. i think that's it that's exactly how it comes across as well um and i can relate to you i, I can never see one thing um in isolation and sometimes it's good and sometimes it can be really frustrating because you're left with more questions than answers but uh, right. that's why it's great to have people like yourself sorting through this information for us right you know part partly too um you know i come from a whole variety of backgrounds yes. i've done a lot of different things and Part of what has driven my passionate interest in the subject matter over almost a lifetime now, I've, you know, I've been certainly studying diet and nutrition for over 35 years, and I've been in private, or I've been um, in some form of clinical practice now for at least the last 20 years, and in private practice for over for over 10, more like 12, 13 years or so now. Um, and, and I've seen in very real time, you know, working with very real people with very real problems, what works and what doesn't, you know, I've been able to help people in, you know, in, in very real ways. And, um, but what, where it started for me was my own, as, as the same place it starts actually for a lot of practitioners, was really, you know, my own suffering. And I, from the time I was an extremely small child up until you know, a little over 20 years ago now, um, I suffered from rather intractable uh, depression. And uh, that was at times quite debilitating for me. Um, and, and that inspired me, I guess, if you will, and not that being depressed is a particularly inspired place yeah. to come from, but I knew that it didn't have to be that way, so I was quite determined to figure out why it was I was depressed and what it was I you know, needed to learn in order to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I 
I covered a lot of bases along the way. I did many years of very high quality psychotherapy. I did all kinds of, you know, deep inner spiritual work and, you know, and spent time at mountaintops and whatever, you know, out in nature. And I, um, and I also did, you know, a lot of, a lot of self-help stuff, you know, tons of, tons of reading and tapes. And, you know, I spent a week working with Tony Robbins and I did all this other stuff. And I also did, um, um, you know, I, I, when I stumbled across the field of nutrition, it really captured my interest in a way nothing else really ever had before. And I realized that by manipulating and in, in, in changing the things that I ate, or particularly the supplements I yeah. took, which was my interest at the time, that I could change the way I felt. And yeah. that really, that, you know, that, that caught me. And yeah. so I pursued that for a while. And I tried herbal medicine, I tried acupuncture. And eventually I stumbled across a, a couple of things. Um, and mind you, after doing all of this stuff, it really primed me. Um, I had covered a lot of bases and, and I had gotten a little something from everything mm. I did. I think had quite gotten at it. Yeah. And there were two things that happened um, almost at the same time. I stumbled into, you know, what, my early interest in nutrition was sort of based in an interest in supplements. You know, what nutrients did what? Yeah. What kinds of things could I take that would make me feel and function differently? Yeah. But I did a real cohesive foundational framework in which to put all of that in order to make sense of it um, mm. in bigger context, right? So I was constantly going for the minutiae. Uh, yeah. without the foundational framework, and, and that felt a little off. For a while, I thought it might be vegetarianism or veganism, and I figured out, you know, through through some very hard, you know, personal lessons. Yeah, that seems to be a common that, story, actually. It is. It mm-hmm. is. I think a lot in the industry is designed to kind of kind of nudge people in that direction. Yeah. But frankly, it, it, it simply didn't work for me, and in fact, it really didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And I was going at it from what I thought was the healthiest possible you know, standpoint. So, but, um, but then I kind of stumbled across, um, you know, this sort of ancestral perspective. Mm. And um, now, you know, part of it stemmed from, um, well, I mean, <laughs> you'd mentioned I should probably bring this up. I actually spent, um, I, I've led a lot of different lives in this lifetime. And, yeah. and one of the, <laughs> involved spending uh, I did, well I was doing some work in wildlife research and so I actually spent an entire summer of my life living less than 500 miles from the North Pole with a family of wild wolves oh, and God, while I was amazing. there yeah I um, you know when I when I left for Ellesmere Island, which is where I was, um, it's the northernmost landmass before you actually hit the polar ice cap. Um, I knew I was going to be in an extremely remote location. I mean, the closest human village was about 350 miles to the south, and you know, and, and even if I could reach that village, it wasn't going to have a a wonderful co-op filled with a variety of fresh vegetables and you know whatever else. We kind of brought with us most of what we were going to have for the summer, and we hunted a little bit for our subsistence but yeah um but uh you know we had precious little of that type of food along and i was really concerned going up there what was going to happen to my health and well-being you know while i was up there like that uh if i wasn't going to have access to food like that Mm, of course Uh, and so and i had been doing a lot of juicing prior to going up there and whatever else so i was really sure i was just going to be really missing my juices and my salads was this in your vegetarian um, days is that right? Oh, well, I, I I had actually 
you know, already given up on that and yeah. actually sort of felt a little bit like a failure. Like, you know, why couldn't I make this really healthy way of eating work for me? You know, yeah. I something wrong with me. Um, and it turns out that wasn't the case, but you know, at the time I, I, you know, I berated myself for a while, but no, I was, um, I was eating meat, you know, but I was trying, I was sort of bought into the whole low fat paradigm, right? Yeah. You know, avoiding saturated fat wherever possible. And if I was going to eat meat, it had to be the leanest possible cuts and only white chicken meat, you know, chicken breast meat or you know, yeah. whatever, eating poultry and that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and so when I got up to Ellesmere, one of the things that um, – the unexpected things I ran into shortly after getting there was I realized that the last thing on my mind was a salad, um, that I was really starting to get a lot of cravings for fat, and I, you know, something I'd never experienced before. Uh, and you know, we had a lot of fat-rich foods along, things like, you know, cheese and salami and nuts and nut butters and, and things of that nature. And I was sitting there on the on the tundra, very well bundled against the cold, um, and, you know, watching wolves do what they do around the den and that kind of a thing. And not really having a whole lot better to do, but sit and stuff my face all day long with these fat-rich, you know, foods. And, and then once a week or so, we would make a pilgrimage several miles away to a military weather station that was sort of in the area where they were, you know, allowing us to go in and take showers, you yep. know, which was a nice thing to be able to do. Survive. Uh, and maybe make an occasional phone call home so that loved ones didn't think that we'd yeah. been eaten by a polar bear or something. <laughs> so, um, and the officer in charge at the station had told us that we were welcome to go into the mess hall. And if there was something laying out, we were welcome to it. You know, um, we always went during a time of day where everybody was everybody at the station was pretty much asleep, you know, like three in the morning or whatever. We had 24 hour daylight. So it was yeah. all kind of the same to us. But they kept regular kind of hours. And so we went when we weren't going to disturb anyone. But anyway, so I went into the uh, you know mess hall, and there across the mess hall with the light of heaven shining upon it was this enormous bowl of butter. And it's like, oh, my God, where's this been all my life? And I just would make a beeline over to that. And I was still eating you know bread and crap like that in those yep. days. But yep. I wasn't really craving the bread. It was just like something I could use as a vehicle for the butter, right? So <laughs> – Toasting that and, and throwing, you know, just slathering butter on it and eating yeah. slice after slice until I was just too embarrassed to continue. <laughs> and um, and anyway, I mean, it you know, it kind of went on like this all summer long. And you would think that somebody that pretty much doing nothing but sitting. And I mean, I was either sitting on the tundra or sitting on a four wheel. Because the only way you could really get around on that very kind of hummocky terrain was by four wheeler. and. Yeah follow the wolves on their hunts and things and the only way to keep up with them was on a four-wheeler so um so i really didn't get much physical exercise at all i you know was occasionally able to take a walk after you know here and there but you know not a lot of that really yeah so you, somebody sitting around and eating all these fat rich foods <laughs> would have gained just like a ton of weight you should be you know? overweight with heart disease um, high cholesterol <laughs> Exactly. Inflammatory, apparently. Totally. Yeah. And but instead, at the end of that summer, I'd actually lost close to twenty-five pounds. Mm. And um, and I know that you know there's a phenomenon known as thermogenesis. You know, uh, you know that yeah. where in the exposure to cold, brown fat becomes more metabolically active and burns white fat for fuel. And clearly, yeah. that was part of the equation. But it wasn't yeah. the whole story. Yeah. 
there was something that was happening that was, you know, it was, it was conflicting with everything I'd been told about fat. You know, eating fat should have made me fat, and yeah, exactly, it didn't. Yeah. You know, the other part to this was that I was sitting there on the tundra looking out over the in this vast sort of Ice Age landscape, basically thinking, wow, you know, one time Northern Europe probably looked a lot like this. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're talking about a place where where ancient peoples had lived for, you know, more than 10,000 years that we know of and had thrived in that environment where there was nothing but permafrost, really, and nothing mm. was coming out of the ground that humans were going to be able to eat, you know, make, make uh, you know, dietary use of. Yeah. So it would have been relegated to a diet of meat and fat, basically, and not necessarily in that order. Um, and I had to wonder about that, too. You know, how did, how were people able to thrive up here for such yeah, a long time to survive but thrive yeah exactly <laughs> you know without access to meaningful amounts anyway plant-based i mean where i was at up there there weren't even berries in the summertime i mean yeah. it was really you know permafrost so i'm sure people probably tried to eat the fermented contents of stomachs once in a while yeah. but <laughs> this was not yeah. a dietary staple um yeah, yeah. so i had to kind of it just all this sort of niggled at the back of my mind the whole time mm. and when i got back to the states how did how did you feel may i ask um over that period as well did, were your energy levels good yeah, they were fine. I mean, I it's not that I was completely free of depression, whatever. I was I was eating some foods up there that were definitely, I know now, not serving me well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, fat was not the problematic, you know, yeah. part of all of that for me. Um, and and so, uh, you know, it, it like I say, it, it captured my curiosity. And when I got back, I sort of... Uh, you know, serendipitously, I guess, came across the work of Weston A. Price. And, um, you know, I don't know if you want me to go into a description of who he was and what he did at all. I don't know if you, if your listeners are already we relative. Can, we, can, we can touch on it. I'm actually talking to Sally Fallon tomorrow. <laughs> Funny enough. Uh, so. All right. Well, you know, West, Weston A. Price, yeah, he was a, um, he was a dentist. Um, and he was actually present, president of the National Dental, what was then the National Dental Association here in the United States, which doesn't exist anymore. It's been replaced by the American Dental Association, <laughs> which, you know, based, based a lot of its, you know, early uh, thing on, on the whole fluoride thing and yeah. whatever. But at any rate, you know, he... It could be a separate podcast. <laughs> yeah, he was also a bit of an anthropologist. And, and, um, and, and one of the things that he was starting to notice was that the, that the health and dentition of, of the children of his longtime patients were, were you know, were presenting as uh, increasingly basically diseased, uh, you know, the... Uh, having a lot of problems with things like malocclusion and mm-hmm. and all various kinds of health concerns and cavities and and things like that that were not characteristic of his of his older patients and he was wondering you know we're talking like the 1920s right you know 1930s yeah. he wondered whether the what was happening as a sort of industrialization of the food supply at that time might not have something to do with some of these changes that he was seeing in the health of his patients and um you know to that end he he was aware of and had heard long heard about the extremely good health 
and well-being of um, of you know primitive people groups and some traditional societies around the world. But he was especially really kind of interested in 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 primitive peoples around the world, yep. and he'd heard about their excellent health and excellent uh, dentition and mm-hmm. and all. The robustness and and whatever resilience from disease, and he, and he decided to embark on this journey where he traveled, you know, spent ten years basically traveling roughly hundred thousand miles around the world, and it was such a unique time period because we had just developed air travel, and yet there were a number of still primitive societies and a few traditional yeah. societies that were that were still Seeing in place. Untouched, yeah. Seemingly untouched and thriving in their traditional manner, yeah. um, in in various places. So he it, he was able to kind of get to them and observe what was actually going on with them, and and uh, you know and study them and take photographs, which of course he's famous for, um, and also evaluate the the quality of their diets, etc. And and what he you know, found rather consistently. Well, one thing he found, of course, is that there were a lot of people eating a variety of diets around the world that seemed yeah. to be doing fairly well, that were reasonably healthy. Yeah. But um, the macronutrient and, profiles varied quite a lot, didn't they? Well, yes, uh, there were there was some uh, quite a lot of variation. But one thing that is the most common takeaway from his work that I think misses the boat a little bit yeah. is that. You know, what most people take away is that as long as you're eating food in its natural state, right? It's the old just eat real food, you're doing okay. Yeah. And and that's it in some respects kind of the basis of the paleo diet, so to speak. Yeah. Um but also, you know, a lot of people following Weston Price's work also have sort of come away with that same sort of takeaway that as long as a food is seemingly natural and un and unprocessed and whatever else that it's inherently good for you and really there isn't necessarily a rational basis for that assumption i mean obviously you're going to be doing better than the person eating the standard american diet yeah. that's with you know all kinds of processed crap but um the idea that everything that that primitive or traditional people groups stuffed into their mouths that didn't kill them, you know, is automatically optimal for their health isn't yep. necessarily a rational assumption yep. either. But one brilliant thing Weston Price did that a lot of people kind of overlook or they miss or they miss the significance of was he asked a very important question. What did they all have in common? And there were two things that he found that they all had in common. Number one... Um, he couldn't find, as hard as he looked and tried as he did, um, he was unable to find any examples of a vegetarian or vegan culture. Yeah. And he was quite disappointed about that. <laughs> so every single healthy, primitive or traditional society that he studied were eating as many animal source foods as were available to them. Yep. But the second part of this, and one that I found myself zeroing in on, was the fact that in every single instance of every single society, the food that was considered the most important, the most sacred, the most, uh, the most basically sought after, was consistently the food that was the richest in both fat and fat-soluble nutrients. Yeah. And you know, to me, that's kind of where the rubber hits the road. Well, both of these, both of these things, I think, are important considerations. In other words, I think that what he hit upon was the foundational framework um, around which many other uh, elements to the diet may be kind of included. 
But as long as that foundational framework was in place, um, that people were able to do well on a variety of foods, some of which may have complemented that uh, foundational framework and others of which may have compromised it. But even as long as they were robust enough you know, and as long as those foundations were solidly enough in place, um, they were able to compensate for for things they may have consumed that may have been compromising to them. Mm-hmm. And, I'll, and I'm including things like you know starchy foods and 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 sugary foods and and things of that nature that uh, may have been less than you know um, supportive of health that may have been more compromising in some respects. But they were able to compensate for that by having so much else in place yeah, that was exactly yeah basically keeping them intact so um and i did i read that um if, uh, there was literally that i can remember I, I read this book a long time ago but there was hardly any uh, populations that ate a high protein low fat diet so if they ever, right. ever eat muscle tissue for example which is usually the last part of the beast to go um that often add fat to it um is that correct yeah i mean in so many well so you know, we need to think about just, you know, how people have been eating. And so uh, hmm. Interesting for context. the last, you know, for the last, um, I mean, so much of what the paleo diet theories and, and things like that, and even Western Price's work is based upon, is the way people have been eating for about the last 10,000 years or so, yeah. which, by the way, is, is re- kind of different, uh, in fact, really different than the way human beings and, and, and the kind of environment and climate or whatever that we evolved in for, for the vast majority of our evolutionary history. So between 2.6 million years ago and roughly 10,000 years ago, when the, when the last great you know, period of glacial advance finally came to a rather abrupt and cataclysmic end, we had been, um, you know, in part, subsisting on, on the meat and, and considerable fat content of some extremely large herbivores. You know, we now call them megafauna. Yeah. And when that last period of glacial advance came to an end, um, we had, there was a die-off of over 120 species. I mean, tens of millions of these animals wow. just suddenly ceased to exist in practically the blink of an eye. Hmm. And if you look at the, uh, at the, and we had a preference. We know from stable isotopic data, uh, from you know, from um, human collagen remains um, that have been studied. You know, you, through that, um, you can you can actually make a determination, fairly accurate determination of what people, you know, were eating and what animals ate and yeah. things like that. Um, in a Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany is is leading um, a lot of this research, and what they found from from you know innumerable periods of our evolutionary history now that there's quite a bit of evidence that we had a a very strong preference for the meat and fat of those animals, and when you look at a woolly mammoth, for instance, roughly half that animal's composition, you know, is uh, actually more than half that animal's composition was was fat, you know, near as they can determine, yeah. and you know, so talking, you know, bone marrow and brain and tongue and you know, yeah. fatty tissues that we also would have gobbled up, you know. Yeah, those were the most sort of treasured parts of the beast quite often, weren't they? Well, especially once with the, you know, that that period of glacial advance came to an abrupt end and the climate changed dramatically from one that was quite a bit colder 
and and quite a bit more climatically unstable to one that was quite i mean um that was more temperate than any we had known in in you know in over 100,000 years um that um suddenly uh, you know 120 species of megafauna ceased to exist and we were relegated to hunting comparatively smaller and leaner animals but that didn't make fat any less important it actually made us better at at uh, being able to spot you know fat fatter animals you know and yeah. and be better better at um at selecting for that when we hunted you know i know that and this isn't just true in places where it's cold that even in the outback you know in australia yeah, yeah. um that you know, fat was absolutely the most sought-after commodity in you know an Aboriginal um, culture. Yeah. That if they if they hunted, you know, down a, a kangaroo, and uh, you know killed that kangaroo, and, and if that kangaroo didn't have enough fat on it, they would leave it out in the sun to rot yeah. and go and find another one. <laughs> with <laughs> because fat was literally wow. Isn't um, this a bit of a contrast okay. to today's? Um, <laughs> Uh, today's Western diet, right? So, anyway, um, and and I got away from part of what I was what I was talking about before. I'm realizing. <laughs> so there were two things that I found. Um, one was you know kind of stumbling across this whole concept of ancestral eating and and recognizing, you know, the much more central importance of of animal source foods uh, to human diet. Um, and, and there being a very strong basis for that being part of what should optimize a human diet. And realizing also that dietary carbohydrates were something that were not required and in, act, and in effect were not as desirable in terms of, you know, optimizing health. So, uh, and I discovered that right around the same time I discovered something called neurofeedback. Yeah, I'd love and, to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. So, which is, it's a sophisticated form, a uh, very highly specific form of brain training uh, designed to basically give your brain information about its own functioning so it can better manage its own states. And uh, it's sometimes called brainwave biofeedback um, uh, or EEG biofeedback. Oh, wow. I've never experienced it, but uh, it, it intrigues me. Yeah, I love the theory it's, of it. it's, it's an amazing, amazing, powerful um, modality. And, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, in, in the early days when I was depressed and I was seeking help for depression, back in those days when I was about 13 years old or so, depression was basically seen as a psychological disorder. You know, if you feel depressed. Um, still quite often you, viewed like that. It is. It is. I mean, a lot of these things kind of, well, it, a lot of these things take a long time to, you know, yeah. to kind of reach the academic world <laughs> exactly yeah so i mean you know with with a plethora of psychologists of course it all if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail right <laughs> so um, and so back in those days it was just basically seen as a bit of a psychological disorder so all you have to do is go sit down and talk to somebody about your problems and hopefully you know you talk that through and you feel better and you go off and you shouldn't be depressed anymore yeah <laughs> you know i don't want to, i don't want to belittle that kind of work i actually I actually attribute, you know, a great deal of whatever I have as sanity yeah. <laughs> to that kind of work that I did along the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, working with, you know, I mean, once I actually found some quality, you know, psychotherapist that um, that had actually done their own work, <laughs> yeah. and, and I was able to work 
with well together um you know we covered a lot of very meaningful ground and 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 it certainly improved my relationship with myself and my relationship with other people in yeah. my life helped me not operate so much from a place of angst all the time but it it there was a physiological component that was depression that it just couldn't quite get at. And, you know, we found ourselves kind of frustrated. You know, my therapist and I were just kind of frustrated with that process. I did so many years of high-quality psychotherapy, and I, I really value that. But we reached an impasse that neither of us really knew what to do with. And now, and then along with the, you know, sort of advent of this, uh, of you know, Prozac and all of that, came this whole new paradigm and it was a biochemical paradigm it was this idea that well if you're you know depressed and whatever that take something to treat it stuff, you know it doesn't have anything to do with the fact you were smacked around as a kid or there was bad toilet training or whatever no no chemical imbalance <laughs> or chemical imbalance and all yeah. you have to do is take this tiny little pill and you know well now we know from the freedom of information act now here in the states that's actually allowed us to go back and look at what were these studies that that established the ssris as as the kind of gold standard in treating depression well you know the studies basically showed them to be little more effective than a placebo yep. roughly 13 percent effective <laughs> and then even in that 13 percent there's more than half that ultimately ended up um either plateauing or backsliding with uh, whatever wow. benefits that they got from that medication and um you know the the actual efficacy was extremely limited and brought yeah. with it a whole plethora of potential side effects i mean some of which actually are suicidality i mean you know in, in yeah. some people agitated behavior and suicidality um so you know it clearly wasn't any kind of holy grail but it does make sense that you know that that the neurochemicals that that make up our kind of emotional matrix if you will because yep. emotions are biochemical storms in the body and brain so the healthier the biochemistry mm, that's a nice way of putting it <laughs> i yeah, like that the, the more uh you know the better maybe the emotional uh you know f forecast so to yep. speak yep. might be so um there's something to that but um, it turns out, too, though, that the brain isn't just simply a hodgepodge of psychological constructs or a vessel of chemical soup. It's also a bioelectric organ. And that bioelectric you know, nature of the brain means that um, that there is there are fundamental timing mechanisms that drive that bioelectric functioning of the brain. And those bioelectric impulses, if you will, you know, that, that electrical depolarization of the cell is driven by certain timing mechanisms and um, that, um, that kind of keep the whole thing running smoothly. And if those timing mechanisms are off and uh, phase relationships and things like that are off, then so is the functional biochemistry likely to be because all yeah. biochemical reactions in the body and brain are preceded by that electrical depolarization of the cell so if you could go in and do something to kind of restore the normal timing mechanisms um that you could go a long way toward helping to streamline yeah. health a chemical functioning you know help that function more efficiently so yeah. that you you could manage your states better and that's kind of the, fun it's the a functional medicine type approach isn't it it very much so, yeah. and, and 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 there is something kind of foundational about that. Um, and I and what I have found through my years of doing that work, and mind you, it was literally after the second neurofeedback session for me that what had been a lifetime of helplessness and hopelessness sort of flew out the window and, and never came back. Now, mind you, I did like forty s sessions of that type of training to make 
that those results a permanent part of my nervous system. But I also have ample reason to believe that there's, I don't know that I would have retained the benefits that I got from neurofeedback training had I not also concomitantly made some of these rather, you know, dramatic dietary changes. And I believe it is those dietary changes ultimately that helped me kind of, you know, consolidate, sort of solidify the benefits that I got from neurofeedback training. Yeah. And, and in all of my work for the last 20 years with a whole variety of people with a whole big variety of problems, um, you know, I found the combination to be a virtually foolproof combination. Now, I mean, it's there, there's more to the mix too. But those things are so foundationally important i think um that that it covers it covers a lot of bases so you know i've i've done uh and and i've been able to see because not every client that i work with is necessarily um interested in doing both right some are just interested in neurofeedback some are just interested in you know given sort of my my notoriety or my visibility within the world of, of diet and health yeah. lots of people you know coming to me in droves for nutritional therapy nutritional consultation etc and uh they don't you know they may not know that much about the neurofeedback side of things they just want you know that other type of of consultation so i've seen how these things work independently and how they also work together and those yep. who wanted to combine those approaches and you know it's it it's a great marriage you know between them but um but i've been able like i said to see what works and what doesn't along the way yeah and um um, if I had to pick one approach over the other, I would say that the more foundational of the two is the dietary approach. Yeah. Um, sometimes been, you know, I, I, I've been astonished almost to the point of being disconcerted at times. Yeah. Just how far you can get just doing neurofeedback alone. In other words, mm. you know, th there have been people struggling with all kinds of, um, kind of health-related issues regard, related to um, very often, uh, you know, maybe mood-related problems or cognitive-related problems and things. And I could see very clearly, because I do a pretty thorough intake, I, I look closely at what do people eat, you know, what, you know, what are your, what's a typical breakfast, lunch, or dinner for you? And you, know, you consider that to be a healthy diet and what kinds that's of a, stuff. That's a good question right there, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I mean, I always have to ask, you know, do you actually consider that a healthy way of eating? Because, you know, sometimes people know it is and some, you know, yeah. and sometimes people don't know that it isn't. Um, and uh, so I can kind of get a sense of what's going on. And it's very clear to me sometimes. So you really dive into their relationship with themselves and their food and, uh, yeah, and others as well. Yeah, that there are very big problems with the way that they're eating. Yeah. Um, and uh, but neurofeedback is still sometimes able to give them some you know significant improvements. But you know, I can, one of the things that I learned over the years of doing this is that I can be doing the best possible protocol in the world for a person. Yeah. They may be experiencing some benefit from it, but it's not going to put a nutrient there that's not there. It's not going to take away maybe some interfering substance that is interfering with the optimal functioning of their brain and nervous system. Um, you know, that the brain and the body need certain raw materials in order to function. And if they're not getting them, you know, there's no possible way 
that they're going to end up with optimal or lasting results. Yeah, I, st- I start to really question, um, you know, how we're feeding our children um, today because obviously, you know, if you look at genetics and epigenetics, you know, most of those genes are, are somewhat set. Is that up until the, the age of 12? Is that right? So I yeah. start to wonder now, you know, um, these children that are growing up on these, um, I wouldn't even say food, these food-like substances. Um, yeah. You know, it, it can't be good, surely. Well, it's catastrophic. I yeah. mean, for the first time in history, children are not expected to live longer. Yeah. In fact, children are not expected to live as long as their parents. I mean, 30s it's become terrifying. the new 45 in terms of onset, uh, ex- expected onset of disease now. And we think of ourselves as living longer than we ever have. But, you know, I don't, you know, it depends on how you want to define living. Yeah, that's one thing I would really like to get into uh, <laughs> with you at yeah. some stage. But um, is, okay, so one of, one of the, you know, the questions that come from, you know, ancestral ways of being is, um, didn't they die at the age of 30? <laughs> well, yeah, so here's the whole thing. Yeah, yeah so... You know, people are like, well, you know, yeah, cavemen ancestors, blah, blah, blah. You yeah. know, they all died by the time they were 40. So, yeah. you know, we don't. Well, look, you know, you have to. Well, for starters, you have to take a look at, you know, what our ancestors would have had available as nutrition through the vast majority of our evolutionary history. You know, what we would have most consistently sought as food would have really done a lot to shape our basic physiological makeup and our most foundational nutritional requirements. To me, that is the only rational starting place. It's And it's only that. It's a starting yeah. place. But, you know, one of the things, you know, that whole business about, well, you know, yeah, they only live 40 years. That it, Well, for starters, it's not exactly true. It's flawed, true. isn't it? Yeah. It, it's flawed, yeah. So what they're basing that on is an average – uh, rate of mortality that takes into account infant mortality. Yep. Um, the, the primary cause of death in our in our prehistoric ancestors and our Paleolithic ancestors was basically um, accident and infection, and yep. you know infant mortality. So if if you you know manage to get past the infant mortality thing and you manage to get around accident and infection, you stood the ability of living every bit as long as any of us do today, only without the chronic and debilitating yeah. disease. And like, like you said before, thriving without you know just merely surviving long and sick. <laughs> right. Right. But, the, you know, here's the thing, another little factoid that people don't realize is that once we adopted agriculture 10,000 years ago, our average life expectancy actually cut in half from those supposedly short-lived, uh, you know, cavemen ancestors. In other words, until the late 18th century, nobody was living longer than about 25. So, wow. uh, and then, you know, we developed better sanitation and whatever have you, but we didn't start we actually started um experiencing some of the earliest signs of what we now think of as diseases of western civilization not during the industrial <laughs> revolution but but following the adoption of agriculture you know when we look at the ancient you know the, for instance you know in the ancient middle east where where the consumption of grains first began to take place um the ancient egyptians they were not healthy people you know no. <laughs> had severe severe problems they're already somewhat you know as um you know daniel vitalis would put it somewhat domesticated wouldn't they <laughs> well yeah i mean that's i think the whole domestication process sort of got underway with the adoption yeah. of agriculture i mean we went from being a nomadic people 
that relied on, you know, calorically on, on fat and meat in that order as primary source of nourishment with some supplemental plant, plant foods to everything flip-flopping. Yeah. And suddenly we went from, you know, 90% you know, caloric reliance on, you know, in fat to maybe a 10, 10, 15% one. Um, and uh, everything just sort of flip-flopped. And over that time period, we began developing metabolic diseases and, um, and nutritional uh, diseases uh, based on various types of nutritional deficiencies mm-hmm. that we had never experienced before. And, and, you know, how we know this, I mean, a good paleo, um, paleoanthropologists can can look at a set of burial remains and tell you whether that was a pre-agricultural or post-agricultural human. <laughs> Such um, a poignant moment, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they just by by virtue of the health, relative health, or 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 you know, compromised health of those skeletal remains. By you know, if there are skeletal abnormalities and and you know, dental you know, malocclusion and, and disease and things like that. You can see those things. They just know this is a post-agricultural human before they ever bother carbon dating the bones. I have an article right now on my blog about Otzi the Iceman uh, that, you know, this, this post-agricultural, um, mm. you know, 5,000-year-old mummy that they found melting out of a glacier in Austria um, in the Alps. Um, really, really fascinating. Oh, no. You know, he he, you know, definitely did some did some hunting and gathering, but he was already a post agricultural human. His you know his last diet, cons- you know, he had meat, but it also had bread. He had grains stuck in his teeth, and yeah. so he was. Uh, it was very very interesting. Wow. You look at I'll the that. <laughs> yeah the medical breakdown of all of that, and you know exactly what agriculture did for us, yeah. um, or to us rather. But in any case, um, so. But what's what's also interesting to me is, you know, so we suddenly went from this, you know, this, you know, the, it's been estimated that hunter-gatherer workday was maybe about three hours. You hunt, you gather, and you're done. Yeah. And we, from that to, you know, eight hours of backbreaking labor in the fields for a comparatively inferior, you yeah. know, food. And yeah. I think in part we adopted it because we had less to select from in terms of animals we were able to hunt, right? Like half, more than half the megafauna were gone. Yeah. Uh, we had to come up with something. But, you know, and we observed animals noshing on these wild cereal grasses and figured out that, oh, you know, we could take and mash those things into a porridge and, you know, and, you know, and, and eat it. <laughs> but, hey, check it out. We can actually ferment this stuff and turn it into beer. <laughs> you know, and I think that's what kind of, you know, the die was sort of cast. Yeah. I, I believe that we actually adopted these things as, as suddenly our kind of foundational uh, source of nourishment, not because there was something inherently terrific about these agricultural foods, but because we became addicted to them. And, and the grains and, you know, wheat, for instance, all contains uh, in its protein matrix, which is, of course, called gluten, um, two uh, very powerful opiate compounds, gluteomorphin, protonorphin. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and you combine that with... Um, you know, if you start eating a diet that's more starch-based, you develop yeah. uh, a more sugar-based metabolism, a, sugar, yeah. a metabolism that's reliant upon sugar as a primary source of fuel. And that becomes inherently addicting in and of itself. You know, we crave yeah. carbohydrates because we become unnaturally dependent on them as a, yeah, na- yeah. as a 
source of fuel. The other piece to this, of course, is that we figured out we could ferment these things into alcohol, you know, and and, you know, and enjoy beer. Um, and there was another addictive component to that. And, you know, sugars also Mm. in themselves trigger opiate centers yeah. but then, then you couple it up with you know the um quote unquote um education that's provided to us today you know look at the um what we're taught that's healthy for us as well as you know having these uh, addictive compounds all around us We've so got, you know, things you know, like the food pyramid that's it's uh, important <laughs> to consider where some of this actually comes from right so here in the states you know we have our so-called food pyramid that you know our dietary guidelines as established by the united states department of agriculture right no no conflict of interest yeah, see, that, that's an important fact for people to understand so note that point <laughs> right exactly so the thing to get is that i can't think of a single multinational corporate interest right down to big oil that wouldn't be heavily invested in every man, woman, and child on planet Earth being dependent on a carbohydrate-based diet as their primary source of nourishment. Because, hey, it's very easy to produce. It's incredibly, um, uh, you know... Lucrative. Profitable (laughs) to produce. I mean, you're not going to... You're not going to uh, be able to... um, make a 5,000% profit on a grass-fed steak like you can a box of cereal. And this way of eating more or less keeps whoever consumes it perpetually hungry. So nice for Monsanto, terrific for Kellogg's, but not so fabulous for the rest of us who are trying to maintain some semblance of health. And when you think about it, um, you know, so big oil's biggest customer is big agribusiness, right? The Monsantos and the, you know, Cargills and the, you know, or, you know, multinational um, kind of big agribusiness companies. Um, And then you have the food industry profiting from this because, you know, 99% of what they produce is carbohydrate based. And, um, and then you have the, the, you know, biotech industry that, you know, (laughs) brings things like GMOs, uh, and things like that that of course are largely have largely to date been predicated <laughs> on plant based uh, and then you have the chemical industries that are producing the fertilizers and the herbicides and the pesticides they profit from a carbohydrate you know us eating a carbohydrate based diet and then you have the pharmaceutical industry that's you know uh, they're, they're getting us they're keeping us um, band-aided up diseases <laughs> you have the medical industry you have you know the weight loss industry and, and then I like to joke that undertakers are also making out like bandits <laughs> and it's you know, the only people the only person's not uh, you know, benefiting from all of this are those of us that actually choose to eat that way. Yeah, and so, so that, that you know, terrifies me. <laughs> yeah, um, well, this is, and this is new. People don't realize this whole carbohydrate-based diet thing is completely yeah. new. Well, if you look at how much our genome has changed versus how much our diet has changed, that's what really terrifies me. And that's part of the problem is that yeah. we have nowhere near as robust a genome. Um, today as as we once did right um you know there and that's that's you know one of the important things to point out we're not living in the world of our prehistoric ancestors anymore either and and we're certainly not living in western prices time anymore Mm. either Uh, we're way more compromised we have way less wiggle room where where people in um you know say uh, even in the early days of the adoption of agriculture or even in Western prices time, we're able to get away with consuming maybe grains and certain other foods that, you know, um, that 
were that they seemed to do okay yeah. on. Um, those foods were not, you know, demonstrably. If you if you break it down yeah. and you look at it, they were not going to be optimizing for health, well, but yeah. people were compensating. And I guess, like, uh, you, you put it in perspective, um, we're faced with more stressors than we ever have been, uh, you know, oh. throughout our history, you know, with more... It's a way more hostile environment. Oh, and, yeah. And, you know, our system and, can only cope with so much, can't it? We're lulled into such a sense of complacency with it because we have our, you know, of course, here, you guys have this crazy metric thing, but, you know, for, for us, it's like <laughs> 72 degree, you know, Fahrenheit, <laughs> you know, kind of comfortable environment where we get to sit on the couch and watch, yep. you know, celebrity bloopers on TV oh or Netflix God, or so something. Toxic. And and so it, it, it feels like everything is, is so easy for us and so safe when, in fact, we've never been under greater assault in terms of mm. today the threats aren't things like saber-toothed tigers and cantankerous woolly mammoths. Today <laughs> what we have to contend with, you know, uh, our, our predatory multinational corporate interests and so much yeah. of what is at us is invisible yeah it's everything from you know emf pollution and, and yes. radiation you know contamination to you know depleted soils and in air and water and uh, you know pollution yeah. and uh fluoride and yeah. and all kinds of things you, that, that are compromising yeah us. i don't know if, i don't know if you wanted to have a read or the listeners have a read but i wrote a blog a while ago called identifying your tigers and it's ex- ex- exactly that um it's, it's trying to have a look at um what stressors in your life you can first of all, become aware of and how you can address them. Um, Right. And I've read some research recently, and I'm pretty sure you've written about it too, that uh, it's not only the food that you're eating, but it's the state that you're eating it in. Is Mm -hmm. that correct? So your emotional uh, state when you're eating it. So, you know, we could be eating the best quality diet in the world. Um, And... But if you're not digesting it properly, at the very least, you're not going to get much out of that food. Yeah. But it, but but even worse, you, it could actually that great food could end up compromising you by by basically uh, rotting and putrefying in your system instead of actually nourishing you. And and the reason for this is that you know our digestive tract, you know, is is basically dependent on. E- it's all this sort of north to south process, but it's really dependent on the foundational basis of a nice, calm functioning parasympathetic nervous yes. system. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, if, if you're operating in a state of perpetual fight or flight, and, un, you know, things have really flipped. We're designed to be in a calm, relaxed, parasympathetic state, like 99.9% yeah. of the time. And the other, you know, 0.1% of the time, you fighting, know. Uh, fighting or running from tigers. <laughs> Yeah, you know, maybe the saber-toothed tiger jumps out from behind the bush and chases yeah. you around a little bit, but then you get, you know, hopefully you outrun the apparent threat, yeah, and then you not go back to your umbrella drink back on the white sandy beach, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but everything's flip-flop today. People are living in a state of being chased around perpetually yeah, by saber-toothed tigers. State, yeah. And yeah. then the other 0.1% of the time, if they're lucky enough to get this fabled thing called a vacation, you know, they, <laughs> they go... do all that hard work. <laughs> yeah, they try to travel to a place like Tahiti, and they just sort of end up stressing out the Tahitians, and then, you know, they come <laughs> back and, you know, and resume this sort of state of self-abuse. Yep. Uh, that they call their daily lives again and you know you know we can't your digestive system you know if if you're being chased around by a saber-toothed tiger how much of a priority do you think your body considers digestion exactly it's one of the first things to go isn't it it's one of the first things to go and yet that's 
most of us metaphorically are being chased around by saber-toothed tigers yeah. almost 24-7 and not really getting a reprieve from that. So some of this, you know, involves, you know, making dietary choices and then doing things to uh, manage that stress and, and really deal with it yeah. uh, in order to restore that foundational um, parasympathetic yeah. function to our brain and nervous so good. system. This is such, oh, that's so good to, to hear. I, I've always believed um, that, you know, having a, a sound autonomic nervous system state, you know, so op- not operating too much in the fight and flight mode is right. um, one of the key key points to achieving, you know, optimal wellness. And it's so yes. good to hear that from, from your perspective as well. No, it, it really is. Mm. Um, you know, I actually have an educational program now, an online educational program that I've, I've created that I'm calling primal, my Primal Restoration Series. Oh, wow. And, and and the idea behind primal restoration is the idea of, you know, really restoring a foundational basis of health, yeah. um, and and kind of you know restoring uh, some integrity to the concept of healthcare versus disease management, and and providing a very foundational educational basis, um, and learning to connect many of the same dots that I have, toward. Um, toward doing things to restore health as opposed to just throwing things at symptoms, right? Yeah. And, yes, and that. Yeah. there's so many, so many aspects to this. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, 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 it's involved and it's complex, but it doesn't have to be complicated to understand. It just, there are a lot of different pieces to the puzzle, a lot of different dots to connect. And so what I've done is I've created a weekly series that's sort of ongoing that is designed to kind of help people connect many of the same dots I have to get the most out of the material that I've already published. But, um, you know, a lot of one of the things that a lot of people don't know, uh, you know, I mean, I have this new book out that's been um, it, published by both Simon & Schuster here in the States and also where you are and throughout mm. the UK by major okay. publisher Allen & Unwin. Um, it's called Primal Fat Burner. And I'm extremely proud of that book. I mean, it's it's got a huge amount of, of just kind of amazing information in it. And we were able to really kind of condense it in there and, and, and make it really readable and accessible to people. I'm mm, really looking forward to getting my hands on that. Yeah, yeah. You know, Primal Body, Primal Mind was like a brain dump. It was like 15 books in one. This <laughs> actually takes it. It focuses in on a particular aspect of things and on a, in a an especially foundational aspect of things, and it tells a story and it kind of leads people through. And then there's a 21 day meal plan, and there are like 60 recipes and all this stuff. And um, people are, I mean, it's already got more than 60, you know, uh, five star reviews on Amazon. And I, you know, there's um, nobody's, you know, trashed the book. Um, yeah. It's it's really good. I mean, I'm, I do I mean, have I a few questions um, for you about that, and I know um, we've gone off on a little tangent today, and that's that's awesome because well, <laughs> there's so much gold there. Um, right, right, right. But something I, I really want to just finish this point that yeah, that, that a lot what a lot of people don't realize is that more than two thirds of the original manuscript that I wrote for that book and nine tenths of the peer reviewed evidence that I supplied that book with were slashed from the final <laughs> version by by the publisher. It must have been hard for you. Of, Oh my God! Oh, you know, <laughs> just might as well just you know just cut my heart out, you know, and just just, just stab. You might me need because, another two books in. Yeah, because it was there was just so much there that I had oh. written that I was so determined to save lives with. It was going to be like the definitive the book, book that ends all books, and all books on the subject matter. <laughs> and more than two thirds of that had to be slashed away just oh, just due to space concerns. Pain. 
the publisher loved the content, but they, you know, said maybe a future book here, but hey, we just got, we can't, you know, People aren't gonna we read can't it. Than, you know, 85, 90,000 90, words and, <laughs> and it just killed me. And no, you can't have this much science in here because people are going to feel like it's too sciencey and all of that. It's like, oh my God, did, but did you I, have to, did I read that you had over 3,000 peer reviewed? It's controversial. Yeah. yeah so, so the primal, primal restoration is a place I hope to put a lot of that material that I wasn't able to include in the Fantastic. book to help people connect even deeper dots and and, and um, if, if you're a nutritional therapy practitioner and there are increasing numbers of nutritional therapy practitioners now you can actually the nutritional therapy association is actually uh, go, is totally behind this new educational program of mine and and it will supply CEUs in you know continuing education credits that allow you to kind of meet your recertification requirements um, you know every year by subscribing to this program so i just want to put that out there because it's yeah, great i'm proud I'll, of this i'll put program. this in the show notes as well cool yeah so you can go to primalrestoration.com uh to find out more about that great great now i've got so many uh little questions about uh this book but i just want to come back to one thing really quickly um how does this feel for you um when people say to you but what about life balance is there room for for compromise? Do you think? How do you feel about this? Well, in terms you know, of having the so odd junk food. Somebody having... puts a dessert in front of me and says, "Live a little." I think that people, you know, or or they think that I'm not don't know what living is because <laughs> I don't eat certain things. Um, I think people really kind of need to kind of get a grip on what how it is that they're defining what it means to be alive. Yeah. Um, you know, they need to rethink that a little bit. Um, you know, we tend to. Uh, look at food as this nutrient-devoid source of entertainment, right? It's supposed to be, you know, fun and, and it's supposed to taste good and all of that. And that's the primary criteria. And, you know, by the way, the diet that I eat, I feel like I'm getting away with something every single day of the week. I love the way I that's eat. So I would why, yeah. Oh, my God. It's but, real, real flavor, real taste. It's, it's amazing. I don't you like can't beat nature's flavors. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm giving up anything. You know, I don't feel like I'm like I'm like I'm depriving myself. No, almost the opposite. Right. Um, I, I, the fact is, is that having adopted a fat-based metabolism, I don't crave um, sugary, starchy foods anymore. Yeah. They're just of literally no interest to me whatsoever. And so it's not like I'm, you know, when the dessert tray comes by at the restaurant that I'm kind of looking away and saying, oh, I really shouldn't. I, I just, I look through it, you know, almost like the way maybe a cat might look through a person yeah. or something. I, it's like I just don't even see it there because like any other animal on the planet would look at margarine. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just not not interesting to yeah. me anymore. Yeah. And it, believe me, at one time those things were very. I used to crave bread. I used to crave, yeah. you know, the little sweet treat at the end of a meal and all that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and so, look. We're living in, I believe, the most compromising period of our entire evolutionary history right now. We've lost, by the way, in, since in the last 10,000 years since we've adopted agriculture, we've actually lost just over 10% of our brain volume. Yep. Um, you know, evolution isn't necessarily moving in a direction we might like <laughs> or we might think. <laughs> you know, we're not um, – we are – 
you know, look, the number one cause of bankruptcy right now in the United States is a bad diagnosis. And, and worldwide, well, just between the United States and Europe alone, 330,000 people are dying every single year just from the effects of so-called properly prescribed yeah, medications. That's the second leading cause or something of death in the right. U.S. And that doesn't even count. That's crazy. People dying and, and being hospitalized and, and otherwise mm. compromised due to, you know, medical errors um and that's just the stuff that's being mm. reported you know we know it's a bigger problem than that yeah uh, and so at a time where you know there's so much impinging upon us um there's so many things happening that you know we seemingly have no control over it's incumbent upon us to take control of what we can we've we we are We've never had a more compromised genome than we do now, and and we've never had a more compromised environment mm. now, more compromised food supply, right? Um, yeah. And so, so how do we, we change that? We've actually never had less wiggle room. Well, how we change it is that in the face of so much that we have no control over, it's incumbent upon us to simply take control of what we can. Mm, brilliant. And, you know, and and just simply be very conscious of the choices that we make and and understand that you know that those little indulgences um you know uh, may be compromising you in ways that that you can't anticipate look we all don't have cancer until the day we do you know <laughs> going along and doing fine until we suddenly you know get a heart attack or a stroke or mm. you know, whatever else and and you hear people with this attitude of well you know um i'm just going to eat what i want we all have to die of something anyway right there's that sort of cynical point of view mm. and i understand i understand because there's so much conflicting information and people get cynical yeah, about stuff confusing, yeah. yeah but but that it's a rationalization yeah. and that rationalization isn't necessarily going to get you what you think you're getting you know people with that attitude have the idea that they're going to be able to, you know, eat Twinkies and drink beer until they suddenly just drop dead of a heart attack and, oh, well, yeah. you know, you got to die of something. It's not always that simple or uh, clean. Majority of the time, it's not. You know, what if you get that diagnosis of cancer and now you're dying a slow, horrible death? Yeah. Right, while the people around you that love you watch watch that happening to you, and it drains them of every financial resource they have and everything else, emotional and spiritual and everything else. Right. Yeah. You get a, or you get a stroke, and you end up living, you know, wearing a diaper for the rest of your life, and having the people around you trying to change that diaper, and you know, or <laughs> or you know, develop, you know, you have a heart attack, and and yeah. it compromises your ability, or you develop, God forbid, Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Something Near and dear to my heart because of family member. Oh, okay, yeah. Of, of Alzheimer's right now. Oh, no more horrible way to die. Where everything yeah. that is possibly meaningful in life is slipping through your fingers like like grains of sand. Yeah. Uh, you know there are a lot. You know, or you can become diabetic and suddenly end up um, losing your vision or or uh, actually having parts of your body amputated as a result of that disease which by the way isn't a genetic problem you know it's a diet and lifestyle problem yeah and so we have yeah. much more control than not over whether we're going to whether we're destined for quality health or compromised yeah. well, i often and wonder like do people really know what it's like to feel healthy and thrive and wake up every morning bouncing out of bed to 
you know just can't wait to to do what they want to do um, right you know if you're if you're young it's easier you know people in their 20s and whatever they think they're immortal although increasingly even people in their 20s are developing these so-called diseases you know uh, uh, that are ex- that are normally expected to be occurring you know later in life and um you know, all kinds of compromise, but and, and metabolic compromise. Um, but you know, the the fact is, we just we just don't have that wiggle room uh, for indulgence. That maybe you know that our well, certainly that our you know great grandparents, our grandparents, or even our parents did. Yeah. Uh, and so, it, if you want to be healthy, it, it you have to think about each and every decision that you make. Um, about what it is that you're going to put in your mouth and, and what it in is in your children's mouths as well. I think it's, right. it's important to know. Well, especially I mean, yeah. children are much more compromised than even you are. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's, that's, that's great. Um, I could ask you so much more. <laughs> can we I quickly could, touch could, on oh, um, oh, another yeah. myth just really quickly? Um, won't fat make me fat, especially saturated right. fat. You know, it's been vilified. How do we even begin to, debunk that i mean i think it's starting to already right well i mean you know the proof is in the so-called low-carb pudding with that (laughs) that uh, you know adopting a fat-based look nobody gets good at burning fat by burning sugar all the time yeah um that you get good at burning fat any more than somebody gets good at playing tennis by playing golf you know (laughs) right you get good at burning fat by by using fat as a primary source of fuel and providing your body with that as a primary source of fuel. Then your body recognizes. And and we have to realize, too, we're creatures of the Ice Age. Fat to us means survival. It is the most most foundational survival food there is, Um, filled with fat-soluble nutrients and a lot of other things. It's not just about macronutrients and energy. It also has to do with nutrition. Um, And um, we are extremely well designed to make use of, of a you know of a um of an animal source based diet that is very rich in fat and fat soluble nutrients uh and so um and if you deprive yourself of that if, if you limit your fat intake too much you know you try to eat low fat or whatever you know your body's going to have its way it's going to get better at hanging on to what fat it has it's also going to get better at making more fat from carbohydrates in your diet so one way or another you know the fat's going to be there it's a question of whether you're going to be a whether you're going to have the variety of fats you need for health your healthiest brain function um and your healthiest physiological functioning and also um you know whether you're going to be good at 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 burning that fat for fuel um or not and so you know where a lot of this myth came from um is that you know, Florida fairly recently. Yeah. Well, the New York Times actually recently, um, you know, uncovered all this documentation. And unfortunately, it wasn't in time for the publication of my recent book, but uh, but very, very telling. It uncovered all this documentation showing it that it was actually the sugar industry in the 1960s that bought and paid for certain re- research conclusions. Oh, no. Conceal and protect that industry from all of the emerging evidence of the, showing that dietary sugar was the primary culprit in these burgeoning, you know, levels of heart disease and obesity, and and the, while conveniently directing blame toward dietary fat and particularly animal 
animal fat. You know, a dietary inclusion that has played a key beneficial role in our evolution for close to three million years. Oh, my and, God. And, it, and the key collaborators in that conspiracy, you know, people like Ansel Keys and, you know, whatever, that sought to it, that cherry-picked data confirmed this bogus dietary heart hypothesis. Yep. You know, and what has amounted literally the expense of, of literally millions of lives since. Yep. And, you know, the fact that, you know, that is that carbohydrates such as grains, legumes, potatoes, and all of that, they're extremely easy, dirt-cheap foods to produce. They're, they're the... <laughs> profitable and 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 they keep people that can serve you know that that are that are dependent on them you know more or less you know perpetually hungry so um so it's, you know yeah it's 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 that's what we're looking at as that's what we're up against in terms yeah. of disinformation and it's, disinformation we, yeah go ahead sorry i was gonna say it's so good to see some research catching up with um um these ancestral ways now um, it's yeah. kind of sad that it needs to, but it is good to see it slowly happening. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it is good to see some of this research now kind of come to the fore and, and expose of, you know, where the misinformation and disinformation came from in the first place. And and gradually, I mean, the tide is turning. There is overwhelming information now, numerous meta-analysis studies now showing that there's literally zero correlation between, <laughs> you know, dietary fat in and of itself and cholesterol even, yep. um, you know, with with heart disease, for instance, and all of that. Now, my, I will tell you that the combination of fats and carbohydrates is not a good one. And oh, that, so glad you uh, said that. That's great. Yeah, so it's 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 literally by eating sugar and starch, and um, and then and then eating a fat rich diet on top of that, it's like putting a lit fuse on a powder keg. <laughs> the result is is basically just. Terrific. An explosion of metabolic problems yep. from that, but if you take the dietary, so between the the sugar and starch, I mean, we have to choose literally. But between the sugar and the starch and the fat, you know, the out of the three major macronutrients, the only one, you know, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, the only one for which there is no scientifically established human dietary requirement is carbohydrates. Not in any medical textbook, not in any textbook of human physiology anywhere. There is no scientifically established um, dietary requirement for any type of carbohydrate whatsoever, much less sugar and starch. Yeah. So to me, and, and, and you know, one of the things that I base my work upon isn't just ancestral principles, but how those ancestral principles, you know, basically converge with or dovetail with uh, human longevity research. Yeah. And we know so much now with human longevity research. We know that the less of a requirement we have for insulin in the course of our lifetimes, the longer we are likely to live and the healthier we're likely to be by far. And, and, and of offspring. Course, diet, yeah, diet, right. And dietary sugar and starch out of the three major macronutrients are the ones most likely to trigger an insulin response. Yeah, that's, right? that's good. And, and we also know that excessive consumption of protein is also not a good thing. Yeah. Now, our ancestors may have eaten lots and lots of meat, but but it turns out that it's, it, even though we do have a basic requirement for many sub, uh, many um, nutrients that can only be found in animal source foods, and complete animal source protein forms the basis of our digestive si process, which is hydrochloric acid based. You know, we've got to have that pH signaling in place in order for proper digestion to occur. We need that acidic environment in our stomach from the consumption of these animal source foods to trigger the right 
you know, sequence of things. But um, it's important that we meet those requirements but not exceed them. So what I'm advocating for is not a high-protein diet. It's actually a very moderate-protein diet. It's eliminating, you know, since we don't have a requirement for sugars and starches, and because they're much more likely to compromise than nourish us, you know, and and because they trigger insulin, it's a no-brainer. Leave them out. Moderate our protein intake. Get enough, but don't eat too much. And then get you know, your your appetite satisfied by eating sufficient dietary fat from a wide variety of foods, including a wide variety of animal source mm. foods, so that you're meeting your essential fatty acid yeah. and fat-soluble nutrient requirements that can only be gotten that way. And then eat as many fibers, vegetables, and greens, you know, from organic sources as you want for that extra fiber, the extra bulk, you know, the feeling, the better feeling of fullness, um, extra antioxidants and phytonutrients that I think are maybe more important to us now than they ever used to be during earlier evolutionary history. And they can also be helpful in terms of detoxification, which is also more useful today than ever before. You know, consume those and eat them raw and eat them cooked and eat them cultured and all fermented, Mm. all these things. Right. (laughs) But, um, that's basically the the dietary foundation that I'm talking about, and and but it's it's again, it it it's not just eat what our ancestors ate. Um, that's not good enough. It really isn't good enough anymore. So it's not good enough anymore. We need to. We, we need, need to, to undo op- all the bad work that's been done. Of what? Because they weren't eating necessarily to try to maximize their longevity. Yeah. You know, they were eating to survive. Right. You know, yeah. and um and so. Human longevity research allows us to make sense of what the best aspects were of those dietary principles in order to better optimize our health and longevity. And if we moderate that protein and not exceed it, it actually flips flips certain metabolic switch, certain switches that um, actually switch on maintenance and repair mechanisms that that help improve you know um the health of your cells and and the regeneration of your mitochondria and that sort of thing which is everything boils down to mitochondria mitochondrial health um and it's literally anti-aging in its effect it's like a loophole in mother nature's design that allows us to kind of make use of of some of these basic principles in a way that helps to cheat the deleterious effects of old age so, so good. yeah, helps us age much more gracefully That's and with great. faculties, you know, yeah. So many so, gold nuggets there. <laughs> uh, thanks. Yeah, I, I, it, it really is. This is this is life saving stuff. Yeah. And um, I'm all about getting to the bottom of everything, yeah. you know, just all the foundational, most foundational principles and, you know, and, and figuring out. You well, know it what? Like you trawled through a fair bit of information <laughs> to get there. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. I, you know, I, I've done quite a bit to try to tie a lot of these concepts together in the books that I've written. And again, you know, I also have an educational program now that I'm really hoping is going to take all of this a lot further for people that, yeah. um, you know, really, really, really want to take charge of their own health and for all. Nora, this is um, this has been amazing, and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And there's so many uh, um, so many nuggets there. I'll try and summarize on the on the show notes, and I'll add links to um, some of the things we talked about today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we touched on about two points out of about ten that I wanted to get through, but <laughs> it, you know, that's it's, where the gold is. And I get I get on a roll. Oh, and it's so good, you know? so good. Yeah. Um, 
I've got one more question for you before we move on, actually. If you could pass on one piece of information to every living person on the planet, um, it could be an idea, a question, or even you know some of this wisdom, what would that be? Oh, boy. I think, <laughs> yeah, again, I think that it has to do with what I said earlier, that in the face of so many things seen and unseen that are compromising us in today's world and so many things that we seemingly have no control over, you know, it really is incumbent upon us to take control of what we can. Um, nobody's going to, you know, the, the changes that we need to see in, in our health and the quality of our of our health care and our food supply and everything else is never going to get fixed from the top down. This is all going to happen from the from the ground up, so to speak, grassroots up. Um, and uh, if, if it's going to happen at all. And so, um, you know, we can't sit around waiting for somebody to come along and rescue us. We're the ones that we've been waiting for uh, to make the changes that are necessary to, to turn everything around in this world and um, but there's nothing that will ever be more important to you I promise you in life than your health and you know when it comes to that we're largely on our own and uh, so taking an interest in that machine in which you inhabit um, and and treating it with the you know with, with the care and the wisdom that it deserves is key to your quality of life Wow, that's so powerful. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. Where can people find you, Nora? Well, I have my basic website, which is primalbody-primalmind.com. I also have my new book, uh, Primal Fat Burner. You can go to primalfatburner.com. There's actually some free bonus material there that you can that you can download. Um, yeah, just read through that. It's great. <laughs> that's that's great, yeah. And um, I also have my new educational program, which is called Primal Restoration. And the website there is primalrestoration.com. And I hope you'll take the time to take a look at all of that as well. So, uh, yeah. Thanks again, Nora. And um, thank, thank you for Carl. everyone who tuned in today, the Best Me community. Um, please check out the, the show notes. I'll put a lot of these links up there. And like I said, I'll try and summarize a lot of what we talked about. Um, but it's so much, uh, there's such a wealth of information there. Um, so get your pen and paper out. Um, and you can find us online at thewellnesscouch.com um, or bestme.co.nz. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook Facebook, and Instagram as Best Me Community. So please go along and have a look at that and look forward to talking to you all next time. Thanks again. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.